Hello and welcome back to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Smith, as we continue in our mission to unpack the secrets of success right at the intersection of business, money, family, and life. Now, a quick timestamp, the latest news for the podcast is that we held our first ever live event last night at Homegrown Private Members Club in London. I sat down with Henry Dimbleby, the co-founder of Leon, the fast food group that sold a couple of years ago for £100 million. Henry's a past guest on the podcast, is a highly successful and passionate entrepreneur, and also a wonderful storyteller. We had 64 people in the room, and they all got a chance to hear his story, ask their own questions, and also pick up a copy of his best-selling book, Ravenous. All in all, it was a resounding success, and we've got plans to do another event later in the year as we continue to build this community of bulletproof entrepreneurs and provide you with valuable insights. So, stand by to hear more. I'm hoping to get access to the video recording of the session, and I will, of course, share it as soon as it becomes available. It's really worth seeing. Now, on to our guest today, Piers Linney. You probably know him from the TV show Dragon's Den, where he appeared for two seasons giving advice and investing his own money in a range of startup companies. Something of a reluctant celebrity, he left the den and he's gone on then to start several other businesses in technology, media and communications, including his latest venture, Implement AI. During our conversation, he explained the importance of storytelling when pitching your business to raise finance, find investors, or just selling your products to customers. Every entrepreneur needs to know how to sell. He talks about the advice that Sir Richard Branson gave him when he was considering becoming a dragon, and you can see why Sir Richard is, is such a successful entrepreneur. Piers also talks about the challenges faced by founders who come from a minority background or maybe just didn't go to the right school or university or the right postcode and also how to overcome that challenge and to succeed. Towards the end of our conversation, Piers speaks passionately about the technology tsunami heading our way called artificial intelligence and what small businesses and SMEs should do to ensure that they don't miss the boat. Piers is a real champion for SMEs, and he's just launched a new company to help small businesses harness the power of AI, which he believes will be transformational. He's hosting a live event in London soon, which is also available by video link if you can't get along in person. The details are in the show notes. And finally, in an act of incredible generosity, Piers has provided the Bulletproof Entrepreneur audience with free access to his online course for entrepreneurs, which normally sells for £198. The course offers 10 hours of personally delivered advice over 15 modules and 76 lessons. If you're a business owner or an aspiring entrepreneur, it's designed to save you time and money and reduce risk to maximize your chances of success and wealth creation. The link to access the course for free is in the show notes. In return, can I ask you for a small favor? This podcast can only grow by word of mouth and personal recommendation. So to help us, could you please share a link to the show with friends or colleagues that you think will find the content helpful? And also hit the follow or the subscribe button on your podcast player of choice and take a couple of minutes to go to the Apple podcast platform and leave a five-star review and hopefully a few positive words. It really would mean a lot to me. But for now, 
sharing his reflections, his insights and wisdom. I give you Mr. Piers Linney. This is Alan Smith and you're welcome to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're looking for ideas and inspiration to guide you on your business and personal journey, then you, my friend, come to the right place. Piers Linney, hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello, I managed to get on to here today. I'm in uh, northern Italy. I was going to say, I'm really, really grateful to you for taking time out. You're on a like a family holiday right now, aren't you? Yeah, taking some time away. I said to my mum, I'm going to the room to freshen up. We'll keep reasonably quiet. Now, I really, really appreciate you taking time out from, um, you know, from, from your holiday to be on this, on this call. Um, Piers, well, I, we can talk about that. I never really have holidays. I just go away. Uh, <laughs> I never really stop working, to be honest. Interesting. I do want to... Uh, dig into that a little bit later because you and I have had various conversations over the last couple of weeks and this idea of kind of work-life blend is quite interesting so we're going to come to that but before we do um look you're a you're you're a pretty high profile British entrepreneur I'm always really intrigued when we sort of start these sort of conversations as to the origin story if you like how you get started in this sort of world of business were you one of these kids who was I don't know selling comic books or sweets at school, you know, what, what was your sort of beginning of your entrepreneurial journey from a very early age? Uh, so I was one of those kids, really. <clears throat> so not, not so much sweets. So my first entrepreneurial, I mean, a lot of, the, a lot of these founder stories always reverse engineered to fit, fit the PR. So, but mine was, um, I, I grew up in Lancashire, so I, I'm mixed race. My mom's from Barbados, Windrush generation, came to be a nurse in the 60s. My dad was a, a, North, a North Manchester lad, Cheetah Mill. Um, very bright, working class lad, went to Cambridge. So I had these great role models. But and I wanted to go into business, but no one really knew what the hell I was talking about. And um, so when I was about, I got 13, I had a paper round. And up north, and this is Lancashire, in a small mill town between kind of Burnley, Bury, and Rochdale, uh, basically in the middle of nowhere. And um, I had this paper round, I earned five quid a week. And uh, I had to work six days a week, get up at like, you know, six, deliver papers for an hour and a half, whatever it was. And if I was late, I got docked 50p, which always used to annoy me. And uh, my dad, one morning, I can't remember exactly how this happened, right? But one morning, my dad, on Sunday, they didn't deliver newspapers. You had to get out of bed, drive to the town centre about half a mile, pick up the papers and drive back. And, and when I was doing my paper round, when it snowed, right, it literally covered your car. So it definitely has been climate change. And my dad said, can you get me the paper? So I go, OK. Well, I traipsed down on my BMX to get the paper. And uh, he, when I came back, he paid me for it, gave me the money, and I like a tip. And the next-door neighbour heard about this new service and thought, can you get mine? And you, and you know where that's going. So eventually it was kind of like my kind of estate, and then through that I kind of built around. And I, I think, I can't remember exactly, I think I, another guy was doing something like that, and I bought him an acquisition. But I essentially fly the neighbourhood and built this paper round. So I was earning Sunday morning, well, let me, before I get to that, and the issue was clearly going back to learning about business, is that I couldn't buy the newspaper from the local newsagent because there'd be no margin, right? And no one was paying for a delivery service. So I had to go and buy the papers from the local wholesaler. And you know, it's like American films where they see a big bundle of papers is thrown on the side of the street in the morning. I used to have one of those arrive at my parents' doorstep every Sunday morning. Massive bundle of papers like that. And I had to go through, sort them, mark who's getting what, put the addresses on in pencil, uh, put them in a bag and deliver them. 
So I was earning then 20 quid a week on a Sunday morning for working, you know, a couple of hours, a bit harder work, maybe four hours work, but Sunday morning, 20 quid rather than five quid for six days. And that was my first kind of beginning to understand that if you find, if you deliver a service to somebody and add some value to their life or their business and you, and you work hard at it, because I had to, then um, you can make some money. And I got to buy a shiny new BMX. And after that, I, went, I delivered Betterware, she was older. This is like door-to-door -door pots and pans. I mean, I did like door-to-door -door sales, selling an old lady there's some rubber thing to get the lid off a jam jar, you know, I was doing this stuff. So I kind of learned the hardware. Yeah, and I yeah. sold like that kind of copy perfume at college. So I was always selling stuff. So I became quite good at sales and sales is something that a lot of people starting businesses forget is a skill that you need. Absolutely right. Now that that's really interesting. So, was where do you think that came from? I and mean, was your were your parents entrepreneurial? Were they in business at all? Where did it Where did um, it come from? No, my mum was entrepreneurial, but my mum, you know, my mum grew up in Barbados, right? She was a, a, a black woman. She wanted to work in finance. Crazily, there was no tourism then, right? It was like right. sugar cane and bananas exported, and she couldn't work in the banks unless she were a white Bayesian. So she thought sack this and my auntie got a job as a nurse um barbado Barbado in the uk because they were looking for the recruit nurses from the caribbean uh kind of proper windrush generation mm. so my auntie was going to the uk stoke yeah. on trent my mum went with her and the rest is history and they they lived in a hospital there which was i mean the stories they tell like an army camp you know like matron telling them what to do and this stuff no men and all this kind of thing yeah. so my mum was and then she spent her whole life in the nhs nurse, midwife, uh, health editor, and then she retired. Now, my mum, though, she always, she, not an entrepreneur, but enterprising. So she ran the local slimming club. Mm. She ran the, you know, a club for women who are domestic, you know, um, abuse issues. And then when she retired, she then started right. a business doing, selling candles and flowers and accessories. She had a shop, which we ended up getting out of quite expensively. And then that turned into a wedding flower right. business. When my dad retired, he was a sort of uh, gig worker, delivery driver <laughs> for about 17 years. So my mum was always entrepreneurial right. and enterprising, right. but couldn't have a business really until she retired. Right. Interesting. So I, I, I guess that's perhaps where some of this came from uh, in, uh, in your own upbringing in terms of your sort of creativity and entrepreneurial sort of skills. So, so what happened? So you go through school. Did you go to university? Yeah, so I, I went through. Um, I went to a pretty poor Milltown comprehensive school. I fell eleven plus. My brother went to the grammar school. I didn't. Um, if you've got a West Indian mother, felling eleven plus is a very dangerous sport. <laughs> so I, uh, so I went to the comprehensive school, um, and 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 I kind of, in a way, right. I kind of shone there because I was quite intelligent. I was quite good, um, although I was a bit sort of, um, what's the word they always use for me? I was a bit sort of. Uh, I knew I was bright. I didn't work hard enough. So I fell my level. I fell my O levels, one O level once. I had to do those twice. I made levels twice as well. But eventually I got into Manchester University and I did a degree in um, accounting and law. When they asked my, my neighbours, right, were Eddie had a quarry. Um, Eddie, had, was a, Eddie had a building business. Graham had a quarry. Um, Derek had a, had a joinery business. It was those kind, of, those kind of people in business. When I said I wanted to go into yep. business or yep. finance and work in a bank, everyone said, oh, you need to become an accountant, which is not the best advice, I have to say. So I was kind of like, well, what do I do? And I did um, my levels again, dropped maths. I did law at night. So I loved law. I found it fast. I like history. So I grew up in, I, I grew up 
I grew up in the middle of the when the Industrial Revolution happened. So when my history teacher talked about weavers' yeah. cottages or mills, he pointed at them out of the window. There's a mill and there's a weaver's cottage with the big windows. So right. I was fascinated by the entrepreneurs of the age, you know, Isenbach, King of Brunel's, your Watts, your Boltons, the, the Carnegie's in, in the US. Uh, fascinated me, your Vanderbilt's. Yeah. So those kind of stories of entrepreneurs amazed me. And I kind of grew up around this sort of scarred landscape, this infrastructure of Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And through that, I got interested in law. So I thought, what do I do? A degree in law or a degree in accounting? So I ended up doing a four-year, which is a good thing, because all my mates left in the third year, I did some work. I did a four-year degree at Manchester University in uh, accounting and law. And Manchester University, they gave me a real chance to get on that course because um, my A-levels and A-levels, you know, as I said, I did them twice. And um, they gave me a chance to get on the course. And I, I got mm. an A in law, I think. I think I did history special. And I got into Manchester University and I did law and accounting for four years. And that got me on the track to being a lawyer. Really interesting. Just, just a, a quick aside, and because this is something that's uh, come up for me the other day, because uh, I did a little thing at my son. My son is fifteen. Uh, thing at his school, and the general one of the questions that come back for a lot of the boys was, "Do you think nowadays it makes sense to go to university, or should you, if you were sort of entrepreneurial, should you just sort of immediately go into business in, in some in some respects?" What would your advice be to you know, youngsters right now who are still at school, you know, having had the experience that you had? So my advice is um, ideally to do what I did, I think, which is my experience. Yeah. So maybe that's maybe I'm biased, but it's to stay in school for as long as possible. Not because, not because no, no, I've got I've got um, I've got two daughters and a stepson. Right, they're kind of fourteen coming up to fifteen and twelve coming up to thirteen. Actually, it's thirteen now. And I say to them, look, and, and to my stepson Alfie, he's kind of like. He was learning to code. I spent you know, quite a long time learning to code, several months, JavaScript, bit of Python. And his course came yeah. to an end. And I said, right, let's get on to another course at a higher level. And he's kind of like, well, why bother? Because uh, ChatGPT can write code. And I, I tried it, and right. it wrote some code for a game, and it worked. I was like, ah, oh, damn. <laughs> so then they got to explain to him, well, it's not about the code, I agree. No one's enough to code in like five years, let's face yeah. it. Um, yeah. It's about understanding the architecture, the principles. Maybe you go and do a degree in computer science, you know. My daughter, she's called Tiger. She's like a mini-me, quite entrepreneurial. She got, right. I, got, I got dragged into school by her head teacher because she was uh, selling rubbers and she was basically um, like erasers. She coloured in, selling them to the kids, you know. Employed two students to do production and sales. <laughs> she's made about 70 <laughs> quid. And they wanted me to say, what are you going to do about it? And I was like, I'm going to high-five her. So I was saying to her, you, my, my daughter's more creative. Yep. So I say to them, you need to learn about the world, right? So you have a conversation with somebody, you, you, you know the basics of, of the world, mm. and that can be anything from physics to biology. Otherwise, you just, you know, you, you're out of context, you don't understand how the world works. Yeah. And then really, it's about the soft skills. And it's about being what I call enterprising, you know, think about what is it you want to do? And I will talk about it later, but yeah. I will say now, technology is kind of, there's a, there's a pyramid of value, isn't there? Yeah. It used to be almost all human labor and technology is slowly over the millennia filling it up and that's accelerating. So you've got to be at the top adding a lot of value. Yeah. Otherwise you won't be gainfully employed. And then there's a longer term conversation I have with them about, you know, by the time you're my age, the world might look very, very different, right? There might be universal basic income, but do you want to be stuck on the government handout for the rest of your life? Or are you going to be able to understand and use technology, understand the context, how you advantage people's lives, because you understand the way the world works, and therefore you can you know, work for yourself. So I think it's a really difficult, complicated conversation to have with children right now, because they don't understand that, that kind of zoomed out macro context either, which are trying to explain to them. So my, to answer your question, 
It's stay in school. Yeah. Um, don't be too specific, though. I think being narrow, you know, learning to be a, I don't know, a toothpick manufacturer is a bad idea. <laughs> you need to be able to, you know, yeah. be much, much broader in terms of your, your skill set so you can apply it to lots of different things. I think that's quite important. I think the world yeah. kind of went from academia, study of um, learning, to very vocational. And now you've got mm. the apprentice, uh, which... Now, apprenticeship's great, but I think being very narrow, very vocational to do one thing is a very dangerous thing these days because software and robotics is coming for most jobs. And that's not forklift truck drivers, that's not admin, that's surgeons, doctors, lawyers, you know, almost anything, and especially creative and especially knowledge work in the information economy. So being narrow, being an apprentice in one thing, you've got to think about that quite hard. I know that's that's kind of going slightly against the grain. I would have said three years ago, mm. apprenticeship's fine. It's yep. a way of learning and it still is. But I think the world is going to change massively in the, the lifetimes of our, of our young children. Yeah, uh, no doubt. So, so keep, keep it broad based, but yeah, do, do there is a lot of value keep in going to higher education. Uh, and I think also it, it is those life skills, which I think uh, one thing, and of course, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. And also, sorry, but, and also, um, sure. It's about, as you said, life skills. It's about you know, learning who you are, what you enjoy, learning how to, you know, most people, kids now, are, they're stuck in a room playing Fortnite, right? Go and learn how to communicate, how to socialise, how to, how to interact with people. I mean, that's, that's a huge skill. Even if you're doing it over, you know, video, whatever it might be, that's a skill yeah. that I think a lot of, I see a lot of young children, they struggle with. You know, you, you, sometimes you're with young people now in a social environment and they're awkward. You know, they, they don't really understand how to hold a conversation with somebody or even look you in the eye. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've noticed that uh, increasingly um, with, with some, some young people. So that makes a lot of sense. So back, or back to the story. So, so young peers now went to Manchester Uni, um, graduated, presumably. Do you so successfully walk yeah, so away I, from there with a degree? And what, well, what, what, what came next? So I did a degree in um, law and accounting and then... My degree was sort of law accounting, but quite a bit of corporate finance. There's a, there's a textbook called right. Brilliant Myers, which is like the, the corporate finance Bible, basically. So we kind of went through that, did case studies. Now, part of my course was a six-week placement. You could do an accounting for anywhere, really. And I got a six-week placement with some help from the university in a law firm, which I don't think is still around anymore. It's like a big shipping insurance firm. And that was in Fountain Street in Manchester. So I did there six weeks, worked my socks off. And, I, and when people, you know, I, I might not have the right school tie, didn't have the grades sometimes, but when I, in, in getting a job done, I was always good at. So at the end of my six-week right. placement, they gave me a training contract, which was quite amazing because it was really hard those days to get a training contract in a decent firm. It was all, it was all Oxbridge. It was all, you know, where you came from, what grade you got. It was very difficult. So I had that kind of backstop. But then I went to London to go to law school, and I thought, nah. I want to be a lawyer in London. I want to do corporate finance. I want to work in the city. That's what I want to do. And I applied again. So I applied to 68 different law firms. Well, let me get that right. 68 applications, some law yeah. firms twice, to be fair. Right. Don't why I bothered, because if you said no once, they're not going to say yes the second time. But 68 times, and one firm, SJ Berwin, which uh, was a, it was acquired and it's gone now, um, gave me a training contract in London. So... Training contracts are always, you get the contract, you go to law school and you start. So it's like a year gap. So now I'm thinking, oh God, now I've got to wait another year. I'd already taken a year out to do my A-levels again. And I did a four-year degree. I thought I'm getting old. And then yeah. SJ Boeing came back and said, look, we're growing really quickly. Can anybody start early? 
So I thought, well, thank goodness. So I started straight away in this law firm. And this was a very fast growing, um, very entrepreneurial law firm that focused on venture capital. So right. I saw I saw all these, and this is pre-internet, right? Pre-tech. This is management buyouts, yeah. MBOs, you know, mid-market private equity funds buying out businesses from the you know the the employees or um, succession plans, whatever it was. Very different world. But I saw the entrepreneurs and the fund managers doing mm -hmm. deals, and I wanted to be them, not the lawyer. So I was in the room when. Is it the guy that bought Tottenham Hotspur? Is it Daniel Levy? Daniel Levy, yeah. When they, I was in the room when, when, when these deals happened, wow. you know, with yeah. the, the offshore came billionaire's money. So I was in the room when these deals happened, basically, and I wanted to be them. And a friend, and I said to a friend of mine who I met at law school, um, said, look, I love law, but I'm not the one to dot the I's and cross the T's, and I want to be on that side of the table. He said to me, you should go into investment banking. And I said to him, what's investment banking? Because I don't have a Scooby-Doo. Right. I, I meet kids now and they've got these life plans, you know. And with me, I didn't know what law was or solicitor until I got to university. Yeah. I didn't know what a training contract was really until I got into university. I didn't know what the city was or banking until I got into the city and law. I didn't know what a hedge fund was until I got into banking. So I, I've always kind of like got into a place, looked over the wall, well, that's quite interesting over there. I want to be that. And then I've kind of clambered over it, some by one by hooker by a crook, quite literally, and I've become that. So I then read, the, I started reading the FT, read the right magazines, <laughs> and went on this long, laborious process to try and get a job in banking. No one's, no one. So the guy who suggested I do that, he got a, a, a job as a second year analyst at Credit Suisse, First Boston, as it was then. This is when Credit Suisse yeah. was solvent. It was also when it was called First Boston. Yeah. And uh, I didn't right. get a look. No one even responds to my letters. Always one liner, thanks but no thanks. And then uh, Barclays Desert Wed, now sort of Barclays Capital, um, gave me a job, uh, a role, and I ended up there. And then very quickly, Barclays announced they were selling Get Out Investment Banking, which they famously got back into, but they got out of it and sold it to Credit Suisse. So suddenly I've gone from, you know, I want to be a banker, no, one, no one's given me a job, one gives me a job, they get acquired. Suddenly now I'm at Credit Suisse, and my friend was there as a second analyst, literally, chained to his desk, never left work, never left the office. And I arrived as like yeah. a, I think like a second year associate. It's probably only about 100 grand more than him. Wow. Um, and that, yeah. and then, then it was like a sink or Then it was kind of like, right, I'm 26 years old. I went and bought my first sports car on a debit card. <laughs> it's nuts. You know, <laughs> right. they gave me a signing on bonus to make sure I'm happy. I rang out my mum like in tears. I gave, sent my mum 10 grand and she was in tears. <laughs> it was all like just bonkers. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. This, this was like my Willy Yeah. That was my Willy Wonka ticket, and I, and I knew it, and I ran with it. Um, so you really enjoyed that, did you? You, you, once you, you? you thought you'd like investment banking, and then you found your way into it, and then what? You, you took to it like a duck to water, did you? It. Really? What was it? What is it, it about it that you loved? Braces. Yeah. I love the, the energy. I've never experienced that work ethic since. That when, when, when you give someone something to get it done, it gets done. It doesn't matter whether it's like five in the evening or five in the morning, it gets done until high quality. Mm -hmm. It was the fact mm -hmm. that in those days, the bankers, you were the master of the universe. I mean, I was like 27, yeah? I was in, I remember this clearly. I was in, um, I think it was Sainsbury's with my mum, and I was trying to close a deal, and I thought, I've got to go and see my, go and see my parents. So I went up north. 
and they were trying to close this deal. And when, when you do a public deal, you slowly buy the shares off all the public shareholders and they kind of come in in waves. So I'm in Sainsbury's at the checkout and this phone goes and it was the, the board of some um, Swiss chemical company uh, saying, hello, uh, where are we? We need to know. And I'm on Sainsbury's going, well, there's 800 million coming in. I was getting the math. So 800 million is going to come in tomorrow by this time. I'm expecting another 300 million on Monday, whatever it was, whatever the dates were. Yeah. And yeah. you can see everyone in Sainsbury's, even my <laughs> mum and dad looking at me. What on earth is he talking about? Who does he think he is? And it was kind of like playing with that kind of money. And um, I learned to I learned yeah. to do financial modelling. You spent a lot of time doing PowerPoint as a banker, let's face it, right? You did, yeah. did modelling, you did research, and you, you kind of put it into a PowerPoint because the time the repro department, which you don't have anymore, got around to it, it was too late. So, right. But I never, I worked six days a week, probably from... 8.30, went to the gym till, you know, at least probably 11 at night. Um, my worst stint was arrived in office at my desk Wednesday, 9am to do a white night, white yep. night defense of a, a hostile takeover on the, on the stock market. I left my desk in the same underwear. I think I bought another shirt at 6pm <laughs> on Friday and I got home, collapsed on my bed and I didn't move for 19 hours. <clears throat> Wow. I loved it. I mean, that, I don't think that even goes on to the same degree anymore. It doesn't go on anymore, does it? Yeah, banking's changed now. Banking, um, a lot of big companies now have bankers in-house. The bankers kind of do the numbers. But in those days, uh, this is like 1997 to 2000, you know, the bankers did the deals. And you've got to remember as well the timing. So yeah. this is the absolute peak of the dot-com yeah. boom. This is 90, you know, the UK was a bit later. We had the free serve um, IPO. Yeah last minute.com all these things were happening and it was just a time it was the internet and i saw the internet as a gold rush and i thought you know i need to hitch my hitch myself up a wagon and head west and i got my bonus in 2000 which was you know i don't know how much it was but it was probably 160 grand it's a lot yep. a lot of money right and i took that and i walked out like literally like you see in the films they give you a box yeah. you put your plant in it and your picture of you of your mom and dad we go and i raised 700 grand leaving the building what for your next venture yeah because everyone just got their bonus okay. that day they were, what, what are you gonna do i'm gonna sell how much do you want okay then it closed all of that money we closed 300k at the end of the day but um and then i kind of left and obviously going yeah. back to wealth management my income's like you know i don't know quarter million quid a year whatever the hell it was and then i, I went to start paying myself yeah. 30 grand a year so my income's now 30. My spending, I was probably earning 250, so my spending's obviously <laughs> yeah. 260, and, and they never quite yeah. met. <laughs> it took a long time for them to meet up again, and they never did actually. There's always a gap, but luckily the property market right. was going crazy then. So you're doing property deals yeah. and you know, yeah. remortgaging, so you're, you're kind of always okay. Yeah, I want to come back to that as well, because um, I've heard you speak about that in the past, about you, when you go into the sort of entrepreneurial world, that you just, your, your cash flow and your income tends to, you know, be a lot lower than in a, in a sort of paid salary job. But one thing I just want to sort of point out, I, I just find it really intriguing and probably highly relevant to, to people listening to this, is that you just, based on what you just said there, Piers, you, you had an inkling that you liked certain things, whether it was law, whether it was investment banking, and you thought, I'll just give it a go. I'll try. I'll, I'll try to get into this this sector or this, this business, and then I'll got to work it out from there. It was perhaps less you know, planned than a lot of other people. A lot of people say, like, I want to do this from, you know, sometimes from a teenager or university days. But you, I think that that's a, that's a big lesson is to try things, kind of be spontaneous and, and, and then 
it sounds like you sort of really went after whatever it took, writing dozens and dozens of letters and putting yourself forward to get into the particular sector that you've identified as some something you want to work want to work within. So, well, it, it, there were kind of worlds that I didn't exist in. So it was like uncovering these gems. Like, I never knew you could do that. You know, I never knew you could be um, an investment banker. Although I studied the theory, corporate finance, right? I knew M and A was. I didn't know you, that could be a job. I didn't know. But until I got into banking, that you had a, a brokerage department that did, or equity research. Yeah. This was all new to me. Yeah. I didn't know what a hedge fund was or an IPO. So I was kind of learning things. I, I've, I've always been yeah. fascinated in business, you know, since the learning yeah. about the Industrial Revolution, right? And, and all the way from my paper round, all the way through literally to qualifying as a lawyer and being a banker, I always have what they call to their side hustle. So at university, it was, you know, doing parties, you know, kind of stuff. And I was working in bars. So I had a lot of money working bars, probably 300 yeah, yeah. quid a week, which is quite a lot of money then. And then when I was at um, law school, I was doing um, limited company formations, did a business doing that. Not many, but it kind of ticked over. And then with a friend of mine, when I was a trainee lawyer, we did film finance. So we did EAS. We, we were the ones that really started that whole EAS right. funding into films. And my friend went yep. on to run Lionsgate in Europe. He built a big business, Lionsgate bought it, and he's quite a famous dude in the film industry now. And I was always kind of doing things like helping him, using my skills to the fore. So I had the kind of legal and you know financial skill set. And then when I... Um, and then when I sort of went into banking, I was kind of dabbling with internet startups. And one of them got to the point where we left, we both left our jobs to uh, have a, to start a .com. So I was always in business, trying stuff along the way on the side, which, which to me, if you've got a good job, is always a good plan to stay in employment for as long as possible. Yeah, and that makes sense as well. So you're kind of experimenting somewhat with things, as you say, a, a so-called side hustle. You've got the sort of the, the the security of an income and a fixed salary and bonus and everything else but you're experimenting with other things at the same time which also makes a, a lot of sense um uh, to me now so, so so tell me what happened next it was quite it was quite Sorry, hard in banking. It, was, it was quite hard in banking to have a side hustle because you never left work <clears throat> so but what banking gave me was a ridiculous right. work ethic so you know some of my best friends this day i don't see them for five years i bump into them it's like you saw them yesterday those kind of friends one of my business partners great mates we he was kind of like a manager when i was an executive in banking he went in the uk team i went into the global m a team and we've been in business several times since and you don't need to you've got very different people very different skill sets but you don't need to worry about what they're doing they don't worry about what you're doing it just gets done and when i left banking i was in um so i, had, I left had the dot-com, we got out of that. I was, I was then thinking, what the hell do I do? I'm sat in my nice flat in Clarkenwell in central London, going through a roller decks class we had in those days. I had a phone and I was like, well, what do I do now? And I was approached by an ex-banker. Uh, 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 she was, a, she was a, a New Yorker. He set up a, raised some money to do a, a, a rights management company in dance music, believe it or not. A bit like Ministry of Sound Time. Right. And they approached me to help. And I kind of I kind of got involved in that and dance music because it kind of interested me. But again, it was just fascinating. The right this is this is we were going to do custom burn CDs. This is pre iTunes yeah. and MP3s. Can you believe it? <laughs> so that always kind of fascinated me. Is, is is what next and where can I apply my skill set? Right. So you, you were thinking of these how technology was changing. So sorry, this was two thousand. Was it two thousand that you went to, you walked out of investment banking? Yeah, so, two, so yeah, so 2000, investment banking, set up a dot-com three months before the crash. So I saw a whole economic cycle in about a year, raising money, 
raising a bit more money, raising money in a down round, a convertible, firing half your team, uh, another down round, and then basically leaving because you can't afford you anymore and falling out with your co-founder, really, um, who we kind of had a difficult relationship for many years. And I was in Miami about four months ago, and we actually got together the first time since 2000 and probably two probably 20 years cool. and we sort of had it we had a great chat and yeah. you know life goes on it was fantastic and we kind of talked about the old days really but and then i went into the kind of dance music music business at about till about 2002 got out of that didn't earn many shares in that really i had my sort of side hustles going and then i was again sat at home in my apartment with my older decks and what the hell do i do now so then i started thinking and what happened was <clears throat> one of my um Chaps that train me as a lawyer had a 2000 vintage venture capital fund that I kind of helped clean up you kind of with him, really. Then they had a regulated entity. So this is an FSA in those days, not FCA, regulated entity yeah. to do kind of investment advice, corporate finance, fundraising. Uh, it wasn't a fund manager, but it's more fundraising. Right. So I then went up to New York, essentially, and, and I got to learn all about them. And this is the interesting one is, so you read now about SPACs, special yeah. purpose, yeah acquisition companies, cash shells. They were all the rage like 18 months ago. Yeah. I was doing SPACs right in 2005, I think it was. So I tried to do the first SPAC in the UK. With uh, UBS, we're gonna put 60 million in. I had my old law firm supporting it. And um, I didn't get in the end because the, the US became more competitive. And lots, so they could get, they get 100% of their money back. Whereas I was offering like 97% if it didn't go right. And I said to all those funds, well, you're not doing the SPAC, but what do you actually do all day? And they said, oh, we're private placement funds. So we do structured debt and equity into public companies. That's we do that in the UK. I'm like, mm. no, no one does it in the UK. So to cut a very long story short, I ended up within a year speaking on US and European conferences of being the European expert in a private investment in public equities called Pipes. So in the UK, most small cap public companies raise money from small cap equity funds. In the US, it's a hedge fund, it's all structured. So I started doing, you know, two million, six million, eight million pound deals um, and charging 6%. So very quickly, I started to make quite a bit of money. Yeah, interesting. So just just pause there for a second. So when you came out of the banking and then you you got involved in effectively a a tech startup, a dot-com, as they were more referred to in those days, and for various different reasons, not not um, ignoring the fact that the entire market sort of globally just crashed uh, around about that exact time. So your timing was was perfect. But I often think people always talk about you know their their, their you know sort of glorious wins. But when things don't work out, there's often a lot more lessons that can be learned. When you reflect back on that 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 initial uh, you know work that you did in the company that didn't that didn't work out, can you think of any lessons that you learned as a result of that? Lots of things haven't worked out. Um, and I think the lesson I've learned is that uh, I talk to entrepreneurs now, people are, you know, I've got quite a big investment portfolio. And I talk to the entrepreneurs and the founders now, and they're clinging on to it for dear life. And I've started businesses recently, recently where, I've, you, you know, they haven't quite gone to plan for various reasons. And you cling on to them, which is, this is it, this yeah. is the one. And as you sort of mature, you realize that often that's not the case. You know, you, you have to do your homework, do your best do what you can for your stakeholders, make sure you can go to bed at night and sleep well, thinking you've done your best that day. And if it don't work out, then that's the nature of business. Uh, it, it's like a, it's an hypothesis in many cases. And you go and, you go and test the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, in, just like in science, it works, it stacks up, and sometimes it just doesn't. And sometimes it can be people, it can be the timing, it can be the market. It's very, I'm involved with quite a few companies now where 
you know, we're getting there, but raising finance is like pulling teeth in the current market, I have to say. Yeah. Um, so you kind of learn, and what I learned along the way really is, is that, you know, do your best, but don't, don't get too sucked into it. Don't chase rabbits down holes. Sometimes you have to sort of test stop, take an objective view and kind of fill the hole in and, and, and move on. And that can be really painful. There've been times where, you know, I didn't want to get out of bed. You know, I had um, a company that was public for a while and uh, it got sold in a fire sale. It cost me about 1.7 million quid. So not only was it the, the kind of the pain of it, not really, the company did very well. Everyone did, everyone went on to do great things, but stakeholder shareholders, me, my business partner, we kind of lost money in that deal. Probably not over time, but at that moment, equity wise, we took a bath yeah. and um, yeah. I had to go and sort of get the company sign its death warrant. You had to get an independent lawyer to sort of sign this document you have to put into administration. And I was at this sort of small law firm on Charlotte Street in central London. I remember sitting there almost in tears, literally, in this little chair. Mm. And this lawyer's like, "Are you all right?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, don't worry. Can, you, can, you, can I can I witness this? And can you sign that? Can, can I and swear this?" He's like, "Yeah, I'll go and get my stamp." So off he goes, and he comes back and he sort of stamps it and swears it. And he's like, "Okay, I've got to pay him like a twenty quid or something in cash. That's the the, the rate yeah. for these things." And as he wanders off to get the change, I'm like thinking, "I can't believe this." And I look at the screen. And I've got Sky News ringing me on my phone for an interview. I'm like, oh, I could do without that as well. And I look on the screen, it's Sir Philip Green and Select Committee being ripped to pieces about where all that pension fund money went. I remember thinking that day, and it's stuck yeah. me forever since, there's always somebody having a worse day. And uh, <laughs> my, the only mentor I've ever really had is Sir Ken Alyssa, a sort of part-time mentor. Yeah. I think he called me myself mentor. And he's Lord, Lef Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, amazing guy. Um, he's mixed race, Nigerian, English, grew up in a small two-up, two-down in Nottingham. And now he's a, you know, Sir Ken, Lord Lieutenant. Yeah. He organised half the coronation. And I met him for lunch view about a month ago. We have a catch every six months. And he goes, how's it going, Piers? How's it, what, what, what's the hit rate? And I'm kind of like, uh, one in three? And he's going, very well done. <laughs> Maybe like, the, the two are like super painful, you know, investment stuff you started. But he's like, that's fantastic. That's good progress. That's well done. And it makes you realize that he's, he's right, you know, that one in three is probably good going in terms of businesses working. And not working, but I, getting I, I to think the point you, where it, scale them. It, it is. It is. I mean, if you, the, the actual statistics of, you know, startups that, you know, go, go on to become successful are pretty bleak, actually, that the odds are absolutely stacked against you if you either found a business or you invest in an, an early stage startup. Um, and you obviously you're hoping for, um, you, you know, your win rates to be as high as possible. But as regardless, it could be a number of different things, as you've as you've said. Yeah. I know very successful entrepreneurs, you know, the names where they've kind of gone again and it just yeah. didn't work out. And they've kind of, you know, probably burnt through two to five yeah. million quid and stopped and they're like, you know, gave it a go, didn't work out, move on. Yeah, absolutely, exactly. So, I mean, m moving on, so you've, you've had these sort of various experiences uh, throughout. A lot of people know you from your um, sort of TV appearances and obviously Dragon's Den, where you were in, what, two two series of Dragon's Den? Two, yeah. So uh, it'd be really interesting just to sort of dig into that a little bit and just sort of to talk about it. How did you initially get involved with Dragon's Den? Did somebody reach out and approach you? What happened? So I um so I, I kind of went into business and I, I had a range of businesses, most technology, a bit of media, telecoms, the convergence of technology and telecoms, unified comms, and some of them got became quite big, you know, sort of forty million in revenue, 
200 employees, uh, you know, four or five million EBITDA. I got out of them. So I had this kind of, <clears throat> this kind of, think of my story. I'm a mixed race, comprehensive school kid that's become a lawyer in the city, then a banker. And he's made a bit of money along the way, a hedge fund. And I was also a hedge fund manager as well um, for a couple of years. So I had this kind of backstory where there aren't many people with my background. Um, mm. So I ended up on this list of like the most 100 most influential black Britons. My dad right. used to always joke saying, you're in at 99, well done, son. <laughs> so I was on this list. <laughs> yeah. And then researchers, yeah. the BBC, wherever they were, would go through this list looking for people. And I, I ended up um, being asked to do the secret millionaire on Channel 4. So this is right. in 2011. So I, I ended up spending, um, I, I did a programme where it was half half in, in a young offenders institution and half in the uh, local community. But they only actually put, put out the TV programme me being in prison. And um, that's where research is kind of my profile was, you know, because it was quite a big program, a secret millionaire. And if you don't know it, it's a bit like undercover boss if you're in the US. <clears throat> and I was sort of um, yeah. a famous 15 minutes, really. It was one of the things people saw. But there's a side story there is that you know, I'm a big believer in diversity and inclusion. And that I, I'm a great example of somebody who could quite easily, because I'm just bloody minded, but quite easily that I could have fallen. There's many hurdles I often talk about in my career to be successful and how you measure that. And I met a young lad who was uh, 19 years old, got 11 years, drugs and firearms. I thought he was very intelligent, helping other people learn to read. I, when he got out, I mentored him, gave him a job, made him redundant, believe it or not. It's quite awkward. Um, mentored him a little bit. I was like the uncle he never had, really. Um, and then, what, 10 years later, three, about a month ago, he texted me saying he's got a new job, a basic salary, 90 grand as a cloud infrastructure engineer. And that's just an example of how in life, it's something I always try and do. If you nudge somebody here, they're downrange 10 years, yep. it's made an enormous difference in their life. So that's something that I always, um, always try and do. So then after The Secret Millionaire, I think what the researchers spotted me to do um, Dragon's Den. And they approached me. And the first time, I wasn't sure. I was kind of busy and don't want to be a celebrity. And I thought, okay, maybe. And then it kind of didn't happen, it fizzled out. And then a year later, they were chasing me again. And this is the true story. They said, no, I made this up. So I was then, as you are, I just arrived in Ulu Saba with Sir Richard Branson on this turboprop, which is his private game reserve, to spend four days with him on safari, right? Not because he likes me, because I gave him a big donation to his charity. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I was sort of thinking, who do I talk to about media, business, the pros, the cons, you know, how you combine the two blah, 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 you know where this is going. So to mm. uh, so cut a long story short, I ended up sitting down with Sir Richard. He gives me a lot of advice about the power of the media and you should do it. You know, you'd be good at it. Um, you should do it. And I kind of said to him, right, okay, fine. And we're literally, this is how it went down. We're having two Coronas on this like rocky outcrops, like a James Bond lair with a satellite dish on top with these like six star hotel rooms with infinity pools. It's just bonkers, that place. And he said to me, okay, you should do it. And I goes, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And I got up to walk away. And he got me to ring the producer, he called me back and got me to ring the producer, who I still know to this day, and said, no, ring them back right now. And I called them and said, I'm sitting here with Sir Richard Branson. And he said, I've got to tell you, I'm in. And that's where I ended up on Dragon's Den. And, and to me, to this day, I mean, every time I do, a, I talk about this, I, I get this like, like hairs, my arms stand up, is that I'm kind of this, my background, I don't want to go over and over it, but I'm this kind of mixed race, comprehensive school kid that, you know, made a bit of money, became a lawyer, a banker in the city, which in itself is bonkers in terms of how I did that at that time. And now I'm sitting in Ulusaba with Sir Richard Branson, the only entrepreneur I'd ever followed and read a book about, yeah. asking him whether I should be a dragon or dragon's den. 
it's just insane. And it's still, it's still surreal to this day. The Dragon's Den kind of faded away and then they, they re-ran it after COVID, during COVID because they couldn't film it. And suddenly everyone recognises you again in the street. So Dragon's Den's been a great, there's two sides to that coin. We could probably talk about it if you want to, but it was a yeah. great thing in terms of opening doors. I get to do things, meet people. I probably wouldn't be talking to you now if I wasn't on Dragon's Den. I get to meet, thing, meet people, do things and see things that I wouldn't otherwise have seen in my life. Yeah, really interesting. And what a fabulous story that is to have um, Sir Richard himself. <laughs> and I love that how he said he didn't allow you to get away with it. Yeah, I'll, I'll give him a call later or tomorrow. It's like, get him on the phone now. That's the kind of the, the that, that's his, um, his whole mantra, isn't it? That's the sort of screw it, let's do it. Don't wait around, just execute, which I think is really <laughs> an important lesson there as well. Brilliant story, brilliant story, Piers. When when you did so, you did a couple of seasons of Dragons Den. Any any sort of stories to share? Then did you, you presumably you invested in some businesses? Did you? How did it work out? Were you were they, were they successful? So Dragons Den, it's, it's still surreal to this day, you know. And it kind of, kind of, I was kind of a reluctant celebrity. Probably still am, really. I'm, I'm a very minor one now. But um, people kind of, kind of used to see me in the street and go. Some people know you, no matter where you go in the world. Uh, I'm in like Italy now, and even here, people are going, "Oh, and and they know who you are." It's crazy. And sometimes they can be South African, they could be Australian, because it goes out all over the world. This program. And I kind of thought, well, what do you do with it? Really, I was, I was always a bit unsure about it. Anyway, but it's it's been a good thing. There were pros and cons to it. Now, in Dragons Den, I was on there the two seasons. Um, probably good to have been a dragon rather than be defined by it. Um, now, I think I probably did the first, well, I did, the first proper tech deal. It was always kind of like, you know, a, a kind of, you know, yogurt <laughs> product. It was always a bit, and these four Israelis, uh, entrepreneurs came out with some of PhDs and a VC term sheet. And I was like, what's it not to like? A beautiful product. If you've got children, you've got children under the age of probably 15, you've probably heard of Wonderbly, Lost My Name, these beautiful personalized children's books. And they went on to sell probably five million of these globally you know, revenues were in the sort of 30 40 million uh and it took quite a while they had their ups and downs they had to sort of um downsize and kind of change the business the way it was struck operationally but they sold it out it's not public the number but they sold it out for you know less than 100 million but more than 50 um several years ago and i, I got five percent for 100 grand and i got eas so i ended up probably in for like 70 or something and the dragons are all kind of like, what are you doing? That's not what this program's about in the green room, you know? And I was kind of thinking, well, it should be what it's about. You know, you shouldn't be diluting founders 30, 40% on their first investment round. You know, it's just not, it's not the way, that's just not cricket. So I think I did, I probably did the only that I'm aware of, yeah. proper tech deal, you went in, you invested some money, there was a period of time and it exited for yeah. cash. I don't really know many others in Dragon's Den that have done that. So I did nine deals, nine handshakes. Six happen, some don't. Due diligence, they change their minds. They're there for the PR. Six deals, one returned the fund. One, I lost my money, probably 50 grand. And the other ones, I kind of got my money back, essentially. Comes a point with the founders where you say, look, give me my money back and we'll part company. And you kind yeah. of did. Um, but it's, it's like a microcosm of a VC fund, really. If you look at the sort of yeah. the, the portfolio return, how that was structured. Yeah, I think overall, based on, on that, that's a pretty decent average overall. So you, you definitely, you walked away um, in profit for the signs of things, particularly with that one investment being being such a success. I made, I made millions, I made millions of pounds out of Dragon's Den. 
What, what advice have you got for people pitching? Because you, you've got this. I mean, I, I've obviously just seen it on TV and it looks like I've, I don't watch it so much anymore. It, what it was, as you say, maybe it's, it's sort of um, not quite as popular as it was, but I was always fascinated by the pitch. You know, people walking in, they've got whatever it is, a couple of minutes just to say their piece. And to me, that was always, you know, that was things were going to live or die based on the quality of the pitch. And some I've seen were just outstanding, really, really good. And some were pretty weak. Any thoughts on, you know, how do you pitch and present yourself if you're trying to, particularly if you're trying to you know, look for investors and raise capital? So just on Dragon's Den, so it's very hard to do business on TV, right? Because you, you run a business, Alan, and you know what most yeah. of it is pretty boring admin. <laughs> it drives you mad. Yeah, true. Uh, so it's quite hard. So that moment of where, you know, you, you place your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations on a table and there's five people sitting in these stupid chairs telling you whether it's going to, you know, sink or swim. And that moment, that kind of that moment of jeopardy, which is what TV loves, yeah. is quite hard to beat in terms of business, right? But that's not business. The business starts when, you, you know, you have the handshake, you, they get the money, and then you actually build a business. But it's quite hard to do. And, and I think the world's kind of moved on a little bit in terms of the, the pace of business. I don't think most founders now want to give away 30% for 50 grand. It doesn't really work. So I think that will evolve over time. And I've kind of looked at this in, with quite a few people in terms of how you might evolve that, um, that, that sort of it's a format, essentially. Mm. And Dragon's Den is actually owned by Sony. It's a, it's a Sony-owned format mm. that's kind of come down and spread out across the world as Shark Tank. Yeah. Um, so... The pitch, though, that is the interesting part, isn't yeah. it? It's seeing people, you know, standing in front of them, like almost naked, really, pitching yeah. and, and, and their hopes and dreams. And these entrepreneurs, you know, the, the ones that are there, most of them, it's changed now, people are a bit cuter, but most of them, they, they mean it. You know, it moves everything to them, the fact they got on TV and they're now standing in front of these people who they think can A, provide with capital and B, with some PR support because they're a dragon essentially, yeah. and they really think that's going to, you know, supercharge their business. Now that's not always the case. You know, it's always hard building a business, whether you've been on TV or not. You get a little bit of a, a PR blip. I used to always bet with the um, people I backed on Dragons Den that their website would crash when it went out, and the only website that didn't go down when it went out was the Lost My Name Wonderbly team because they actually knew right. what they were doing, and they got a scalable solution. So the pitch, though, really is, is it's about a story, isn't it? It's a story where you want a beginning, the who are you, the backstory, the personality. You want a middle. You know, you want the the business, the plan, the size, the market, and you want an end. How am I going to make some money and get my money right. back? Investing money is easy. Yeah. You know that. You write checks. Getting yeah. your money back, especially when it's high risk and it's and it's it's a liquid. It's the it's the tricky part. So investors want to know. And, and again, there's a spectrum, right? Uh, I've been a banker. So at one end of the spectrum, there's the founder. There's the, I've got an idea, right? And you're backing them. Yeah, yes, you're backing the idea and the market, the opportunity, but you're backing them because the likelihood of that business pivoting, changing, evolving is, is, is massive. Uh, you're probably not going to be the same business they thought they were going to start with by the time it's scaling, if it scales. Other end of the spectrum, you've got utility company. You know, the whole board, the whole senior management team could disappear in some horrible air crash. It wouldn't matter. It would just carry on. Yeah. It's all about regulatory yeah. risk, really. So yeah. that's the spectrum. At this end, it's about the individual. It's who you're backing the individual. And everyone on Dragon's Den, you backed. And a lot of the people, even the ones where they, they, they lost some money in the business, didn't work out. I still know them to this day because I backed them like the individuals. And I backed them yeah. again.
Yeah, really, really interesting. So, but the the, um, the strong message there is just really build your story. That's what you that's what you're selling to investors, isn't it? You tell you're selling a story about the future and how, what how their investment is likely to work out if um, if things go according to what you're expecting it to do. So, very uh, yeah, very good. And also having the given the confidence that given the confidence that you you could create some value even if it doesn't go to plan which often is very very difficult because you've kind of you've kind of focused your resources in one direction it can be very very hard to pivot people talk about pivoting as if it's something they wake up and change what they're doing it can be yeah. very difficult so you you enjoyed your time uh on dragon's day why did you leave in the end so i left partly because they were kind of messing around with the format they wanted they were talking about having like seven dragons eight dragons they wanted to change them all the time um i think by by january february they couldn't really give me dates to film in march april so that was kind of a bit of a, bit of a problem because i was running several bits of them with board of directs asking what the hell was going on and you're kind of investing about you know 250 300 grand a series as well and i've probably done mm-hmm. nine deals and it kind of kind of run its course really and then but I think a lot of it just wanted to change the format and I think myself and Kelly and Duncan when there's a lot, yeah. lot of discussion about this we decided it was time to sort of move on and I think that's the right thing to do I don't want to be as good to said you were a dragon and it's, well, no, it's funny wherever you go in the world no matter how much money people have got you can't buy that yeah. right but I didn't want to be defined by it and I think and, and when I left when I left Dragon's Den uh, Sir Ken Alyssa, yeah. uh, I mentioned earlier, he's like the only mentor I've ever really had. He said to me, right, Piers, you've got a decision to make. You can go celebrity and go to the opening of fridges and envelopes and fall out of nightclubs drunk, or you can go serious. So I kind of went quite quiet for quite a few years. I was on the board of Nesta, the UK's largest innovation agency, in a £600 million foundation, ended up on the board of British Business Bank during COVID, went from £12 billion to £90 billion. So C-bills, bounce-back loans, all that kind of stuff. I was on the board. That was crazy. Right. Very interesting. I advised in a very large automotive manufacturers, Sky. So I kind of went down that route, and I think that was the right thing to do uh, with hindsight, but it's, it's opened many more doors for me than it would have done playing the celeb social media game. Yeah, and I think that, that that's interesting. I'm, I'm just interested in your take on this. The, the concept of, well, I guess what's known as personal brand, you mentioned earlier on Sir Richard Branson. Obviously, he's got one of the most highest profile personal brands there is. You've obviously got a personal brand, which has come on the back of your TV work. Not everyone can be Sir Richard Branson. Not everyone can be on television. But what do you think about the concept of trying to raise, you know, raise your personal brand through whatever means or mechanisms that you've got? It's, it sounds like it's, it's definitely been uh, positive for you, Piers. So I didn't really play on the, my TV um, background really in terms of my personal brand for quite a long time and then um, my partner she said to me well, why, why why don't you and I kind of thought she's kind of right really so she in a way she pushed me along and then and then, I, then I was on the internet I was thinking all these entrepreneurs wherever you go if you're next dragon right no matter, you can be I've been on a train, I've been asleep and I've woken up and someone's written a business plan on a napkin and left it in front of me with a business card. Yeah. You know, hotels, <laughs> coffee bars, restaurant, toilets, <laughs> everywhere you go. He was like, oh, sorry, mate, I don't want to bother you, but I've got this business. And, and, it, and it's just like, I think, why, why I get asked the same question all the time? So I actually made a course. It's called, it's called Startup uh, with Piers Lillian. And I made this course. And, you know, I did quite well out of it. So I started, until typically, right. always the case with me, I started giving it away. 
And uh, it was really about going from literally startup to selling a business. 76 lessons, 10 and a half hours, I made this course. And it was to help entrepreneurs. And that really is what kind of rebooted my profile because it had to kind of market it. So that's like building a profile and that's like talking about it. And I, I've always been quite um, open and, mm. and you know, keeping it real on social media, really. And that works for some people, doesn't work for... I know lots of people yeah. that... You know, they pretend they're somebody they're not. And the danger of social media is, is that you, know, you try something that's not really you and you get feedback, yeah. you get followers, you get money or whatever it was. And you think, oh, hang on a minute. And you double down on it and you get more money and more feedback and you double down on it. And before you know it, you've gone down a path where, yeah, you're getting a return, mm -hmm. but it's not really you. And that's, and I've, I've been approached to do things quite often. I get asked and I pay quite a lot of money to go and promote stuff, but I don't tend to do it because I don't really believe in it. Um, so I've kind of created, it's, it's not massive, my brand. It kind of supports what yeah. I need to do. I monetize social media in different ways. So I do things like um, I get asked to advise companies, I do keynotes and, you know, that's really how I monetize it. It's not really, you know, I'm not making advertising revenue on YouTube videos and no chance or you know, or my Instagram. I mean, the biggest following mm. is probably on LinkedIn, and that's not enormous. Um, so I monetize in different ways, but it is a channel for people to um, kind of meet you and talk to you. Although people do stop me on the tube sometimes. I do use the tube. And they say, Piers, how are you? Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm thinking, oh, my God, where do I know them from? Uh, going from my brain. And eventually I have to say to them, don't take this the wrong way, but how do I know you? And they're kind of like, yeah. oh, we're connected on LinkedIn. <laughs> you were kind of like, oh, right, okay. So you laugh about it, but it's kind of a nice thing because they feel as though they can connect with you. And what happens is every, probably twice a year, um, I go, I'll give another story. So I was on the M6 um, about what, two years ago, and there's this chap in like a, like a tow truck. Up, coming up behind me, I'm in the middle lane, he's coming up on the inside, I think, what's wrong with him? And we're stopping in traffic, literally, not the usual M6. And he comes up, I thought, oh, what have I cut this guy? What's he doing? And he's sh shouting at me, wind the window down. So I wind the window down, I'm kind of like, sorry, mate, can I help you? He's like, because I've i got this, like, van, it looks, looks like an Amazon van <laughs> yeah. outside, but it's like a private jet inside, like a, it's like a van conversion, but I, I went crazy. And he I had some logos on it, so he recognised the logo and thought, I wonder if it's me driving it. He goes, I can't believe it's you. And I go, well, what? He goes, I met you three years ago and you gave me some advice about starting a business. And I thought, you know what? He's right. I'm doing it. And I've started it. This is my wife. This is our tow truck. I'm doing three million pounds a year recovering high uh, expensive cars. Thank you very much. And he drove off. That happens twice a year, that. And just that alone, I think, is, is worth it. Wow. That is, that, that's another great story. The impact you've made kind of almost without even knowing it, and guy flagging you down on the M6. That's brilliant. Piers, is your course, is it still available? Can people find out about it? Yeah, it's um, startup.peerslinney.com. Um, if you're interested, we can maybe um, put a code in the description or however we distribute this. Yeah, let's, let, let's do that. We'll speak afterwards. We'll put something in the show notes and people, uh, it, it sounds, sounds brilliant. It sounds, um, it sounds very, very valuable. So that course, it, it, it nearly killed me making it. I, I thought I'll do a few videos and ended up being 76. That's a lot of videos. That's a lot. I'm sure there's some absolute gems of wisdom and learning within them. Piers, before we move on, I do want to just explore one thing, which I think is a really important issue that I haven't really explored in any detail on this podcast before. Um, and that's this whole concept of kind of 
entrepreneurship, particularly as it relates to ethnic minorities and the, the challenges that comes with that. So, you know, raising capital, you know, getting certain jobs. The, I know it's something that I've heard you speak about before. Obviously, you're very active uh, in, in that in terms of the challenges. If you haven't come from the right school, the right background, if your name doesn't fit, you're definitely up against it. So what, what are your thoughts on that? What have been your experiences and what, what, what's the kind of solutions potentially to this challenge? Uh, you need another podcast for that one. But I think the short version is, so, so a lot of it was kind of anecdotal, right? You had this idea that it was more difficult if you come from a, you know, not, not just a sort of a, a Afro-Caribbean background, any, lots of different backgrounds, really diverse backgrounds. You can be a white working class lad, it can be quite difficult to get to certain places. And I, and then when I was on the board of British Business Bank, there was some research that was done, a couple of pieces of research. One was called Alone Together, which British Business Bank actually commissioned. And that found that, you know, that if you come from a Afro-Caribbean sort of, if you have Afro-Caribbean heritage, it was very, very difficult to start a business. And what was quite interesting is that, well, not difficult to start, to succeed, depending on what your outcome was. So often the people with Afro-Caribbean heritage invested more money in starting a business. They were better educated, which was interesting, which surprised me. Um, maybe it shouldn't, but it did. Uh, better educated, invested more money, time, energy, and resource in starting a business, but their outcomes just did not match their, you know, their sort of white counterparts in many ways. And it's very, very difficult. And there's some more research about two years ago found that black women in the UK, the only one black woman in the UK had raised a Series A venture capital round in the last decade. Wow. So if you're, if you're black, it can be difficult to succeed. If you're Caribbean, even more difficult. If you're a, a woman of Caribbean heritage, even more difficult. And the issue is really, is that um, it's about social capital. So social capital is who you are, what your parents are, what they did, where you grew up, what school you went to. It's this kind of privilege that a lot of us are, you know, I, I didn't have it. I, I was lucky that I had a very um, academic, bright father who knew something about everything. He's like a walking, you know, who needs chat GPT? I had my dad. So, I, and he, he was, I learned a lot about the world from my dad. But, um, but if you haven't got that kind of, that social capital and access to financial capital, it can be hard to start a business. Um, and what we need to do is try and provide access to, to three elements really. One is capital. So how do you get it? So the startup loans company is kind of in a way synthesizes that, although it's a personal loan. The average startup loan, which is part of British Business Bank, is 7K, to give you an idea, the kind of scale of it. Right. And then you need networks, which can be networking. And you can kind of synthesize that, but it can be hard to do because a lot of it's, a lot of it's generational. Um, and a lot of it can, is kind of that, that it's intangible in many ways. It's the access to, it's just confidence sometimes about how can I start a business? Should I start a business? How do I go about it? So if you can synthesize access to social capital, you know, financial capital, you know, networks, and um, just the, the know-how essentially, how to start a business. Because a lot of us just know how to do it, but we don't know how we know how to do it, or we can mm -hmm. ask somebody. And if you come from an ethnic minority background, you have that support. And all we're trying to do really is connect the dots. You know, my view is, is that ambition is evenly distributed yeah. across yeah. the country, right? Access to social capital, financial capital, networks, etc., isn't. And what we've got to try and do is connect the dots because there's a huge amount of um, um, capability, of energy, of, of ambition that is just not being utilised to its full extent. And what technology does, hopefully, especially artificial intelligence, is it kind of begins to level the playing field and level people up. But 
as it stands, and the US is better, the, the UK is probably worse, but as it stands um, now, even in difficult economic times, you tend to find that what we're really talking about here is social mobility. And during recessions or times like this where interest rates are going through the roof and people can't afford to pay their energy bills, you tend to find that social capital actually goes backwards. And that's the danger. Right. Interesting. Obviously, a lot more work needed to be done. And, uh, you know, credit to you for your um, the work that you're doing in this uh, in this area, Piers, and, and raising the profile of what is clearly uh, a, a challenge. Now, you mentioned during that, that conversation, this is interesting, this whole thing, because I do, before we, we sort of head towards the end of our conversation, which has been so impactful and so, so helpful, Piers. You mentioned these magic two letters, A and I, artificial intelligence, in the context of technology leveling the playing field. So hopefully there'll be, there'll be some benefits for, you know, for everyone, particularly SMEs from whatever background they're from. But let's spend the next sort of five minutes or so really unpacking exactly what's going on, because I know that you personally have sort of gone deep dive into this whole emerging technology. Um, so g- give me the headlines. What do you think the impacts are likely to be? Most of the people listening to this podcast are kind of business owners, SME business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs. What are your sort of headline thoughts around the impact of AI and how it's going to affect us all over the next few years? So we haven't got much time. So let's start at the kind of the end result, really. So Artificial intelligence, and we'll talk about what that is, is going to fundamentally change everything we do, from how we live, how we communicate, how we interact with technology, how we interact with each other, business, economics, um, government, society. So what we don't know is quite when. So, you know, you've seen lots of transitions, you know, the, the first industrial revolution, you know, steam power, augmenting human, human physical labor, basically, being able to turn things and have machinery. Then you had the sort of second uh, industrial revolution. That was more sort of, um, you know, consumer goods, electrification. And then you had the third industrial revolution, let's call it, you know, the internet, web one to web two, social media, web three, blockchain. And the fourth industrial revolution is really is software. And Mark Andreessen, who's the one of the founders of Andreessen Horowitz, one of the big West Coast VC funds, and he he basically invented the browser, really Netscape and Mosaic. He sort of wrote an article in 2011 saying that software is going to eat the world, which kind of has done in terms of our lives. If you think about it, now AI is going to kind of eat software. And what artificial intelligence really is, it's been 50 years of it being, you know, machine learning, big clunky organizations. You've had computer vision, you know, translation, text to this, text to that. And what's happened is, is the last sort of year or so we've seen come onto the mark access what they call these large language models. And this is where these models have basically ingested the internet in many ways. And you can describe them as, people call them like a very advanced autocorrect on your spelling, which is a bit, bit cleverer than that, but you've seen these models where it now allows us to communicate with technology. So all these different strands of research have now co- coalesced together. So it means all that kind of human um, brain power, that cognitive labor is now focused on this technology. And therefore what we're seeing then is uh, the move from this sort of linear change in, in technology mm-hmm. to an exponential one. And over time, normally, you get a what called innovation curve. So technology, you know, it kind of takes off, it peters out, and the new technology comes in. There's a, there's a big argument about what, what's best. Cloud's one of the good ones for businesses where should I use the cloud or not? I can't believe people don't these days. The conversation is still going on 10 years later. Then it takes off again. And then the same happens again. 
AI is going to change that. Is that if you think about software, if software can now start writing software, it begins to iterate very, very, very quickly, and it begins to evolve very quickly. And then once software can then, and I'm not talking about sentient robots or you know robots trampling over the the the, the crushed skulls of humans on some horrible cityscape. It's nonsense. This is you know AGI, artificial general intelligence, is where intelligence, the AI, is able to do be general rather than be kind of narrow, specifically one thing. Artificial superintelligence is where, you know, we can't comprehend how it designs things, how it works, you know. An AI, there won't be one big AI in the, in the sky. There'll be lots of AIs doing different things. But when, as soon as one understands something, they all do, and they all iterate and go on from there. So if you imagine humans, our DNA is like code. It takes millennia to evolve. Our brain is fixed by the size of yep. the birth canal. Uh, that's it, essentially. Can't get much bigger. AI is not. You can have data centers the size of, you know, playing fields or even bigger than that. So the, the infrastructure that's going to run on is not our wetware. And there's nothing clever about the human brain. We think there is. I don't, I don't believe in, you know, I don't, I'm not religious, right? So I think it is what it is. It's wetware with some software running on it somehow. And we can replicate that. So artificial superintelligence will solve things that the issues of mankind, nuclear fusion, um, ridus of diseases, things we just can't understand in ways we will never understand, which is fantastic. It doesn't mean it's conscious or sentient. Forget that. I'm on about just technology growing and improving an exponential rate so you imagine you wake up in the morning it's it's worked out how to do how to solve nuclear fusion the world has changed about lunchtime it's worked out something else and that begins to iterate and grow and compound if you understand compound interest uh, yeah. that's what it is it's a geometric progression it begins to grow very very quickly so what you're seeing in business is the ability to start automating your business now there's a lot of hype and noise but increasingly there were very very powerful models and platforms you can now plug into and use that to automate everything you do rather than relying to some extent on third-party applications so if you're a software designer now putting software as a service SaaS on the internet you're kind of going to go after the, on the bell curve the biggest part of the market, the edge cases are not really that interest to you. And you kind of deploy some add-on product, which is kind of half-baked essentially. Whereas now in business, you can now use these platforms to absolutely um, automate all those edge cases and do everything you needed to do specifically for your business, like micro apps, micro SaaS. And that's going to change access technology and how we use it. And I think that my view is the big companies now are interesting because you're seeing their you know, usually the big company, the laggards, the small companies are the early adopters. And we're kind of seeing the other way around. The big companies are throwing billions at this because they think there's mm. existential risk, risks they understand, risks they don't understand. And they're going it hard, investing in it. And small companies are kind of getting there, but they're kind of getting what the, the trickle down. So what you're going to see, I think, is the big companies can now come after the long tail, which is usually the, the you know, it was what small companies played. But small companies now, because of this tech, can kind of go after the big companies. But you're never going to go, local chip shops, they're going to do, you know, global distribution yeah. like, you know, Amazon and, and vice versa. Um, but there's going to be a middle ground where there's going to be a battle, I think. And I'm very positive about it. I think that AI is going to be a net positive for mankind. It's not going to be, you know, we're not going to be sort of wiped out by technology. I, I think it's still, yeah. it's still a clever toaster, essentially. 
and, and, and you know people talk about alignment and, and I think there'll be there'll be a situation where this technology will be probably in my lifetime it'll be mm. much more intelligent than human and it will look at us and people say things like you know when you move your garage you don't think about the ants that you squished and will that be what AI is like so we may get to that issue but hopefully we'll find a way of it being very much aligned but in business there is a huge opportunity to get ahead of the game because this ship I will say and Alec my co-founder of the company Implement AI he talks about the bullet train leaving the station I like my ship analogy where the ship's leaving the harbour right and you either make the leap or you don't but there comes a point where you can't make the leap and that ship begins to move away at a, at a, at a greater speed exponential speed eventually and you can never make the jump. And most of society is going to be left on the key side. And the question is going to be longer term, how we deal with it, obviously. But in the shorter term, if you're in business, you need to be on that boat and make sure that you're leveraging technology to create as big a competitive advantage as you possibly can. And it's not clear yet, and it's going to take time. Yeah. And it's a journey. Alan, we've talked about this. It's a journey, but you've got to get on that journey and start testing, working out so that as these things begin to firm up and crystallize and become very usable. I mean, you know, the days of a keyboard, right, are over. My, my daughter, my, especially my daughter's children, who have children, will, will never use a keyboard. I think it'd be like, I think it's insane. It'd be like, you know, it'd be like TVs, you said, they weren't, they were, they were yeah. fatter than that. They won't understand it, you know. And, and the technology where things like, I, I used to advise quite recently, a very large automotive manufacturer, right? Our children will probably never drive, it'll probably be illegal to drive a car in a large city by the time they're my age, and their yeah. children will never learn to drive. And that's the world we're going to. And everyone says, oh, it doesn't do this, it can't do that, it doesn't do this very well. But this is, this is, I lot use Nokia Snake again, I'm more of a Pong guy because I'm older, that rubbish tennis game. And that took my lifetime, that was launched in 1972. It took my lifetime to yeah. get to Call of Duty, Fortnite, you know, Forza Horizon, you know, more or less photorealistic gaming. It won't take my lifetime to go from Pong, Nokia Snake to us talking to computers and you're going to lose this graphical user interface we're used to. You'll talk to a computer and give them an objective or an intent and it will then go off and talk to lots of other AIs to solve the issue you want and bring back the answer. It won't be this iterative, you know, hammering at keys on keyboards until you get the right answer. So it's very, very exciting. It's kind of a, a large fog two years out. It's very difficult to see the future into, but you, you've got to start probing it now. Yeah, I, I find it, personally, I find it absolutely fascinating. And in, in classic entrepreneur style, you, you've mentioned it already, but you have, you've actually started a, a brand new business. Tell us a little bit about the business and um, how people can learn more about it. So I think the AI is bigger than the internet, yeah? And I was, and I, I was a trustee of Nesta, I mentioned, yeah. uh, a big innovation foundation. We did a lot of research on AI and its impact on the economy and the country sort of five, 10, 30 years out. And lots of places in the country where, you know, like call centres, for example, say in Loughborough, that kind of area, lots of call centres at the time, probably still are today. And, you know, there won't be people in call centres unless they're there to do escalated issue problem calls in, you know, five years, definitely not in 10 years. So whole swathes of the country in terms of the core skill set there need to be re re sort of retrained. So I was looking at that and I was talking to Alok, who's got a background in sort of more medical AI. And we were sort of saying, well, why is no one really talking to SMEs about this, which my focus has always been, I, I like to champion small and medium-sized enterprises, and I've always done help them understand technology. 
And we were kind of having this conversation every weekend for about a month. And then one one you had that kind of awkward silence where you think, why don't we yeah. do it? So I think getting into technology in AI is very difficult. Unless you've got enormous scale now, to be able to you know teach these very large language models, you've got data centers like football pitches, very hard, I think, to compete in real, the, un the underlying technology of artificial intelligence. And on top of that, the technology is moving so quickly that by the time we developed an application and got to market, it's out of date. So I was sort of saying to a lot of the, you know, in this kind of gold rush that we're all potentially can benefit from, the best thing is to sell shovels. So, so we're kind of helping companies understand the artificial intelligence opportunity and then to implement since we call it implement ai the, the clues in the name and we're kind of in a way like the outsourced ai partner to have to spend our days trying to keep up with this stuff and that's all i do and even i struggle sometimes to keep up with it so we can help our clients implement what's actually going to make a difference and not get lost in the noise and the hype yeah and we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to the uh the company and the website on in the show notes because i think this is this is the whole point there is so much going on it's overwhelming it's confusing I, i've always felt that you know the successful businesses su successful people over time are those who actually execute take action and implement the stuff as opposed to just sort of talking about it and then it gets sort of all go, go around your head and so I think what you're doing is, is, is really interesting, really relevant to all kind of smaller businesses who haven't got sort of armies of tech people working for them, but they do have uh, the opportunity and want to take advantage of it. There is, when this podcast goes out, um, it's, it's worth just mentioning as well, there is a, there's a live in-person event in London on uh, July the 5th. That's correct, isn't it? I think it's pretty much sold out now. There's a couple of seats left yeah. as we're speaking. There are the opportunity to sign up, I believe, for a video streaming thing, which people, if you can't get uh, to the actual uh, live event uh, as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, just thinking about my own company, my own business, we're sort of really, really you know, interested and excited about the opportunities that this, this creates because, um, as you say, it is just, it's just sort of completely changing everything as we know it and understand it. So, very, very exciting, exciting times. Piers, I've got... It doesn't matter... Sorry, go on. It doesn't matter what you do. You can be the local fishing shop shop. You can now hyper-personalise and delight your customers. And, and, and eventually, a lot of this is going to be commoditized. So the point here is, is to get ahead of the game and try and stay ahead of the game. And like I always say, you've got this pyramid of value, haven't you, where it's been filled with technology and you, it's a race to the top. If you're all sort of down here and it washes over you, there is no way back. It'd be very, very difficult to sort of catch up to this. And it is going to be quite frustrating businesses in terms of the pace of change. But eventually, we're all entrepreneurs especially, you're going to find a way to deal with that cadence. And you're going to say, okay, we're going to run with this for a period of time until it's much better. And then we're going to swap something else in and then keep going. And I think that the technology that we are going to experience the development of over the next decade is going to blow our minds. Yeah. Yeah, really exciting time to be in business. And so what we'll do is we'll, in terms of resources uh, for this podcast, we'll, we'll definitely post links. There's also, I've seen there's a couple of um, documents or PDFs, things, you know, sort of relevant to, to small businesses and, and some of the issues to consider as it, as it relates to, to AI. So we'll, we'll, we'll post those up uh, as well. Piers, this has been absolutely fantastic. Again, really, really grateful to you for taking some time out from your, um, your, 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 your non-holiday holiday, as you, uh, as you describe it. I ask everyone on this podcast. Well, or most, I, I, I kinda... Sorry. 
Um, I, I try and structure my life now so that I can kind of travel and, and work. So people always think I'm a holiday, but I'm not. I'm just, I just, I've, I can't drive past Highgate Tube in London once more. I need to sort of move around. So in July, we'll hopefully be talking to you in various, from various places, but I'm driving to Croatia in my, uh, in my land yacht. But as long as I can get on to connect to the internet, it's not always easy. But if I can connect yeah. to the internet, I can work. So, sounds good. You might have just answered the question that I I was about to ask, and I ask a lot of people um, who come on this podcast. And look, you, you've had a you know huge amount of success throughout your professional uh, career. Uh, you've achieved a lot. You've you know you've you've made some money. You're very candidly shared. You've lost a bit of money as well, but you've definitely been been successful. When it comes to the concept of wealth, peers, in sort of in conclusion, what's your definition of what I call true wealth? How would you describe? True wealth. So I've, I've, I know people have true wealth. You know, I know billionaires, and um, that's true wealth. Where my dad is always stating there, true wealth is where you can live the life you want to live on the interest. <laughs> that's wealth, mm. right? Um, now, uh, most people don't get there. I think, and I know you're in financial planning, you can work out how much money you've got, how much you need to earn, how long do you expect to live, what lifestyle do you want. It's quite, there's a yeah. formula to doing that. But my view really is, is that. Wealth is, is really, you can live the life that you want to live, look after the people that matter to you, and travel a bit more comfortably. And that's wealth. And wealth can be, you know, you can earn, I'm picking numbers now, it's like a lot of money to some people, but you earn £100,000 a year, yeah. right, income. And if you get to do the things you want to do and go to places you want to go and you're happy, then you're wealthy. I know people that have, I'm not making this up, hundreds of millions of pounds and they are the most moody, depressed people that I, I don't want to spend time with them. And all they've got to do is complain. I'm like, what is wrong with you? I know billionaires that they've found the right balance and they have a, a great life and, and they're, they're happy. So wealth is a very personal thing and you can't just measure it um, in terms of the sort of financial measurement, but that does help clearly. But I think that if you can look after people that matter to you, do the things that, that you like doing and travel comfortably, that's wealth. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And I have to say, my humble opinion, speaking to us from uh, the Italian lakes <laughs> right now, I think it would be fair to say that you've achieved certainly many people's definition, hopefully your own definition of true wealth. So for now, again, thank you so much, Piers. Thanks for joining us. You've, you've just shared some really sort of gems of wisdom, really, really helpful. I look forward to catching up with you again when you're back in the UK. But for now, Piers Linney, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Alan. Thanks for making it this far. I hope you found this episode to be helpful. If so, I'd like to ask you for a small favor. Can you please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review? Because that's one of the best ways for others to find it. And please send a link to the podcast to three friends or colleagues who you know will find it helpful. That way we can spread the word and everyone can benefit. Thanks again for tuning in and being part of our community. I'll see you next time.